Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, a billion-dollar relief package for Ontario's colleges and universities. Doug Ford has doubled, tripled down on appointing like-minded judges. Mike Schreiner is shocked that his housing bill that would allow four plexes across Ontario just got punted to committee. We discuss why that happened. And in your column, my column, I'll discuss a new study proposing a big increase in transit funding. And I'll focus on the youngest cabinet minister in Ontario history, who got appointed 50 years ago this week. Stick around to find out who that is. It's Friday, March 1st, 2024. So let's get to it. You know what I like about doing this on television now? What's that? I like, besides you, I mean, (laughs) besides working with you, I walk into the clothes closet I blow past all the suits and ties, <laughs> and look what they're letting us wear now. Isn't this great? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you have a great Ontario uh, icon. I went with more like a uh, Star Wars iconography. Uh, Do you on want to my take shirt. us through that? I just noticed that you got yeah. What? So uh, there are X wings and Tie fighters, the Millennium Falcon. These are all very meaningful uh, uh, sp- spaceships from the uh, Star Wars universe. You are a very strange person. Well, you know, I thought it was like nerdy, but also discreet and tasteful. Well, I'll give you that. Give you that. <laughs> How do you like my province of Ontario? Uh, well, I mean, you are actually repping the provincial public broadcaster. There you go. Uh, there, you so go. there you go. <laughs> Shall we get down to business? Let's do it. Issue one, here we go. The provincial government has announced it will spend nearly $1.3 billion on the province's colleges and universities. With so many foreign students now not coming to Ontario due to the federal cap, the lack of enrollment could cost the sector $1.8 billion. Add to that a tuition freeze that's been in place since 2019, and that will continue for another three years. And colleges and universities say they are really feeling the pinch big time. Okay, JMM, take us through where the money's going. Uh, The funding from the province is going to, in part, uh, top up uh, post-secondary institutions, uh, colleges and universities who, as we say, are worried about that uh, uh, tuition money evaporating. Um, But it's also going to provide grants for uh, northern schools in particular, uh, money for STEM programs, uh, as well as mental health services. Now, the provincial government has been touting that this is an historic investment in the post-secondary sector, but they also appointed a blue-ribbon panel several months ago to give them some advice on what to do, and how does the amount of money the sector is getting compare to what the blue-ribbon panel has recommended that they get? Well, I mean, not for the first time with this government. Uh, They have uh, solicited advice uh, from a panel of experts and then not hugely followed through with that advice. Uh, The Blue Ribbon panel uh, recommended uh, a uh, bailout, so to speak, of about $2.5 billion. Uh, So the government is poning up a a little over half of what this uh, panel of of experts uh, had said was needed. The Council of Ontario Universities says that there are 10 institutions across the province that are uh, looking at running deficits this year. So a bit of a a funding crisis, so to speak, in uh, the post-secondary sector. We are happy to give credit where it's due. And our friends at Global News reported this week that the Minister of Colleges and Universities, Jill Dunlop, was apparently prepared to raise tuition by 5% over three years. But the Premier intervened and stopped her from doing it. He insisted they be frozen. She has subsequently told CBC News that she, in fact, was never in favor of increasing tuition. 
One hand says one thing, one hand says the other thing. So anyway, where does the continuing freeze for three years get us? Well, I will say just on this point, I, I mean, it's not unusual for a cabinet minister to, once the decision has been made, to almost refuse to talk about what, what happened behind cabinet doors uh, with those kinds of debates, right? Yeah. You have to back the government plan once the decision has been made. And in this case, once the premier has made that decision. Um, so this premier, obviously, uh, really emphasizing affordability in terms of the post-secondary sector, right? They fr- froze tuition, uh, more or less the beginning of their uh, time in government. Uh, don't particularly want to revisit that in, in a way that would make it much more expensive for students and, let's be honest, some parents to uh, uh, fund those classes. Um, but, you know, this this tuition freeze does continue to pose real problems for the post-secondary sector. I think it's fair to say at this point, if, if all of government is a balancing act, the premier is still preferring to uh, balance in favor of uh, students and uh, families uh, who are, are worried about paying these tuition bills, not so much worried about the post-secondary sector right now. Every time he has a press conference, affordability, 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 that's become his brand. Now, How do I put this? I don't normally spend a lot of time in our segments here telling people who we don't have coming up on the program. We like to sort of promote who we do have coming up on the program. But next Monday, the staff of the Minister of Colleges and Universities, Jill Dunlop, said that she would appear on the agenda Monday night to talk about this announcement. But then, after confirming that she would appear, they called me back to say the interview was off. Now, we are still going to cover the subject on Monday's edition of the agenda because we want to go do a little deeper dive on this. Alas, the minister will not be with us. There is no word on why she was pulled from the show. Can we offer some informed speculation here? Well, the uh, press conference that Minister Dunlop held uh, earlier in this week to uh, announce this uh, aid package for universities, uh, let's just say it did not go well. Um, It was widely panned, I think, Um, you know, as it's not terribly uncommon uh, in, I would say, politics broadly, but with this government in particular, um, the the minister really just ignored a lot of the questions, just gave boilerplate answers, really like stuck to the message track. Um, Multiple occasions, you have reporters saying like, that's not an answer. You're not answering the question I asked. They don't Uh, usually do that. Reporters don't usually come in and say, that's not an answer to the question. uh, Yeah. Like you you really have to- Try not to be obnoxious, but in this case- there really were no answers to legitimate questions. Yeah, you, you really have to um, try to guess <laughs> to, to be that um, uh, assertive, let me put it that way. Um, didn't seem to, to get her off the message track at all. Um, it's possible that uh, Dunlop's performance uh, did not give people confidence that she would handle herself well in uh, other TV interviews, like, for example, on the agenda. And you know what? I would have gone the exact opposite way. I would have said I can understand why she might have had a tough time with a uh, you know pack of hyenas yelling questions at her uh, during a press conference. But we offer a civilized environment in which to have reasonable discussions in this studio. And, uh, you know, what can I say? I'm disappointed that uh, she got pulled, but uh, I, think we, I think we can infer why that happened. And in no any- offense to our other colleagues in the Queen's Park Press Gallery, when we say that, that we can sometimes come off as hyenas, that's meant only with love. Of course. They're, <laughs> I mean, they're paid to be hyenas or at least, you know, yes. ask some uh, tough and aggressive questions. Anyway, I know we're going to yeah, later on, we're going to talk about your column, my column. Um, I'm going to talk about something else. You know, the youngest cabinet minister of all time who was appointed 50 years ago this week. But I also just because 
Just because I did not enjoy that news conference so much, I did another column this week on this, and that's up on our website as well, tvo.org slash the agenda. Scroll down, click on my face. That column is there. Okay, on to issue two. Premier Doug Ford has raised the hackles of some who work in Ontario's justice system by saying out loud twice or maybe three times this week, actually, that he wants judges appointed who share his conservative philosophy, like-minded. No liberals, no new Democrats need apply. JMN, this story has had a lot of legs this past week. Why do you think it's caused such a fuss? You know, I think at least in Canada, you know, the justice system is an area where I think there's broad agreement that you don't actually want to uh, politicize appointments overtly. Uh, Courts are too important and their decisions need to be respected even when you disagree with them. Uh, You don't want to uh, go down the road of uh, not to engage in some knee-jerk anti-Americanism here, but I think most Canadians broadly appreciate that our judicial system is not overtly partisan the way uh, so much of the American judiciary is. I would agree. And you know, there's this joke in politics. They They say a gaffe in politics is when you say out loud something that is true. (laughs) And, you know, it may very well be that Doug Ford has simply articulated out loud twice, three times, four times this week, something which all parties do, but which he has simply said out loud. Do we think that's true? Well, you know, there has been some reporting from, uh, in particular, the Globe and Mail uh, on how at the uh, federal level, you've got judicial appointments that, um, let's say they are closely correlated (laughs) with uh, campaign donations to the Liberal Party of Canada just as a for example. So, you know, on the one hand, yeah, I think we can say that uh, Premier Ford is getting panned here for something that other governments do, and uh, but, but more quietly and maybe um, a bit more discreetly. Uh, there is a separate issue that is, it's not just about appointing people who share the government's philosophy, um, but there's also the question of the, the quality of appointments, if I can put it that way. Um, remember that we're not talking about Doug Ford directly appointing judges. We're talking about appointees to a committee that itself nominates appointments for provincial judges. And, you know, uh, some of these appointees, uh, I think there's fair reasons to 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 question uh, their qualifications, right? The Liberal uh, Party earlier this week sent out a press release noting that uh, one of Ford's appointees is uh, not just a registered lobbyist. Do we want to mix lobbying and the judiciary? I think that's a a very, very fair question. Uh, But in particular, uh, this appointee is a lobbyist for an American gun manufacturer. So uh, uh, I think that's quite aside from the issue of does the premier want like-minded judges, these appointees in particular, I think there's lots of, of fair grounds to criticize them. And now on to issue three. Back in November last year, Mike Schreiner introduced Bill 156. It's the Homes You Can Afford in the Communities You Love Act. These names are getting more and more intriguing, yes, aren't they? Indeed. You were excited to bring this bill to our attention on this podcast today. How come? Uh, well, if uh, you just started watching this podcast when we were put in primetime, uh, you may not know that I'm a, a giant nerd for planning policy. I think we uh, know. Poor Steve has <laughs> suffered through my uh, obsession for years now. Um, so this is a planning bill, uh, and Shriner's bill would do a bunch of things. Um, it would make changes to the Planning Act that would legalize fourplexes uh, and four-story buildings across Ontario and legalize mid-rise buildings. These are like buildings of rough 
roughly, let's say, four to ten stories, uh, uh, particularly on transit corridors, uh, again, across Ontario. Um, it would help uh, speed up approvals, bypass the Ontario Land Tribunal, um, and uh, it would match a lot of policies that we are already seeing happen at the local level to varying degrees, uh, like, for example, in Shriner's uh, hometown of Guelph. Um, but it would apply them province-wide. Now, the bill apparently has been punted over to a committee instead of being debated for second reading, which I'm sure will be a, a bit of a disappointment to the leader of the Green Party of Ontario. Uh, yes, uh, he was quite vocal about uh, this disappointment. It's a bit of an odd step. Normally, you... you have the second reading debate, and then there's a vote, and then it goes to a committee. So this was an unusual step, and Schreiner had some things to say about that. Let's have a look. Yeah, I was surprised. I was literally sitting on the floor of the House, and I heard a government member uh, move a motion to discharge Bill 156 to committee. And I, if you probably go back and listen to the recording, there's this person going, what bill number? <laughs> and, um, and, and somebody said 156, and I'm like, that's my bill. <laughs> so I was completely shocked, frankly, um, because I thought this was a bill that every party would support. Hmm. Now, the government, of course, is in control of the agenda of the House. They do have a majority government. Why would they do this th for a bill that seems to have so much widespread support? So when I'm going to go back in time a little bit here, when the liberals were in power, um, you know, one of the time honored tactics of opposition parties is you bring a bill forward that is good and sensible enough that the government can't really oppose it, but they just, they, for whatever reason, uh, they, they, they don't want to be seen to totally kill it. Um, and so the government of the day and the, the, under the liberals, it was very common. You would, they would let the bill pass. They would let it get sent to committee and then it would never be heard from again. <laughs> and so that might be something that is happening here, right? Uh, the government simply is punting it to the committee where, uh, we will never hear from it again, except that the government has its own housing bill that they uh, Minister of uh, Municipal Affairs and Housing, Paul Calandra, has said that he, he will be bringing a bill forward in coming weeks. And it could be maybe a bit more optimistically, a bit more charitably. Um, it, it could be that the government is uh, going to study both its own bill and Shriner's bill uh, at, through the committee process. And they could say, you know, actually, we really like Schreiner's idea and we're just going to fold it into the government legislation. That's the kind of thing uh, that uh, they could do. Uh, Schreiner has said, like, he's, he's all for the government taking his ideas. That happens all the time, frankly. You know, opposition members will put forward bills. The government likes some of the ideas, but they don't want to give the opposition credit. So they'll, they'll literally steal the idea, put it in their own bill. It's a new number. It's a new title for the bill. They'll pass it and they'll take all the credit for it as if it was their own. They're, they may be doing that in this case here with the housing bill. Maybe they might be doing it on another bill as it relates to the 407. You got anything on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, this idea that um, another idea that Schreiner has been a, a huge proponent of uh, that I'm, I'm I'd say less optimistic about. Uh, he has uh, been a very strong proponent of uh, having the government pay for the, uh, the, the tolls for freight uh, trucks to use the 407. You would take a bunch of trucking off of the 401 and and help sort of decongest that uh, part of the provincial highway system uh, and, and shift some of that traffic to the 407. It's the kind of thing that could be implemented quickly. But uh, the reason why I, I suspect it's probably not going to happen uh, under this government is because Schreiner, of course, wants us to do that as a alternative to building Highway 413. 
the the Ford government is not looking for any alternatives to building <laughs> no, the 413. No, that is not on. That yeah. is not on. But would the idea be that you take trucks off the 401, let them use the 407, but not pay tolls? Yeah. So uh, the the government would would pay their tolls for them. Uh, the, you know, it, it would be expensive. It would be you know uh, billions of dollars over years um, because you know the 407 costs money. Um, but uh, you know, in terms of it's something that can be done relatively quickly. Like you just really need to cut the check. You don't need to build any new infrastructure. It's something that like people would notice reasonably quickly. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, even driving through, I, I, I don't own a car, but I, you know, when I, when I do uh, drive on the 401, you know, it's like, yeah, like the, the, the trucking is like everywhere. And, and this is a problem that is getting, um, more acute uh, as people rely more and more on things like e-commerce, right? There's just more and more trucks on the road. And the 407 is underutilized. So at some level, it makes sense to try to get vehicles off the 401, put them on the 407, presumably better for both highways. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and, and you know, you could, you could equalize the traffic a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll see if they steal that idea going forward. On to your column, my column. Okay, it's time now for our regular feature, Your Column, My Column, in which JMM and I reminisce about the columns that we wrote for the TVO website, tvo.org, this past week. JMM, what caught your fancy this past week? Uh, The uh, environmental NGO, Environmental Defense, uh, put out a report uh, arguing for a really big increase in government funding for uh, transit operations. Broadly speaking, we've got two buckets of transit funding. We, you have uh, capital spending, which is like the cost of actually building uh, stuff, digging out a subway tunnel, building new LRT lines, whatever. And then there's the decidedly unsexy operations side, <laughs> uh, which is like actually funding the service. So the bus shows up on time. So the trains show up on time, that kind of thing. Uh, a very old problem in uh Lots of places, but we're talking about Ontario, is that governments love to show up for the capital spending side of things. They love to show up for the ribbon cutting. Um, But then when it comes time to actually fund the uh, bus operations, the the LRT, whatever, uh, they are nowhere to be found. So uh, this new report from Environmental Defense uh, argues that uh, just by uh, getting some of the buses we already own, that are currently idled because we are not spending the money to uh, run them, uh, we, we could substantially improve transit service. And then over a period of many years, we could really build out uh, a very robust transit system across Canada's cities. Uh, they, they take a nationwide lens, but they do have estimates for uh, Ontario and how much it would cost here. But basically, uh, the upshot is that if you did that and you uh, also we're going to get back to planning. If you liberalized planning rules so that you could build more homes and uh, around transit, that uh, you could get really massive greenhouse gas uh, emissions reductions uh, on par or, in fact, exceeding uh, what we would get from electric vehicle adoption. Gotcha. Uh, my column for this past week, how do I put this? It emanates from the swearing-in of the current cabinet of Ontario which was back in 2022, after Doug Ford won that election. And Michael Ford, his nephew, was appointed to the cabinet. I think he was 28 years old. And a lot of people in the press gallery came up to me because they figured I'd know. And they say, was Michael Ford, is he the youngest cabinet minister in Ontario history ever appointed? And I think I was able to say, no, he was not. There was somebody younger. And we looked back into the books and we figured out who it was. And that's who I wrote about this week, because I want everybody to know who the youngest cabinet minister in Ontario history ever was. His name was Dennis Timbrell. He was the member of the legislature for Don Mills. He was 24. 
Can you imagine? He was 24 when he was elected in 1971 for the first time, and then 27 when Bill Davis put him into cabinet. Guess what portfolio he got when he got put into cabinet? Seniors in long-term care. <laughs> <laughs> Quite the opposite, actually. Okay. He got the Minister of Youth, of course. Minister of Youth. Uh, Bill Davis was really quite impressed with Dennis Timbrell. He didn't stay in the youth portfolio for very long, promoted him to Minister of Energy, where he did quite a good job there, actually helped save the minority government on a couple of occasions by finding compromises that saved the day. Then he got moved into health. He was the longest serving health minister of the last 50 years and fourth all time. Health ministry is about 100 years old. When Mr. Davis retired, Dennis Timbrell ran for the leadership convention to replace him. And this is another reason why I wanted to write this column. I've covered a lot of leadership conventions, <laughs> like probably 25 over the years. This was the dirtiest trick I have ever seen to prevent a candidate from winning. It was perpetrated by the winning side, Frank Miller's team, against Dennis Timbrell. And I'm not going to tell you what it is because I want you to go to the website and read the column. Suffice to say, it was a uniquely dirty trick with all sorts of very unfortunate racist overtones as well. But it worked. And Frank Miller won and Dennis Timbrell lost. And all these years later, this was in 1985, so we're talking almost 40 years later, it still bugs Dennis Timbrell when we talk about this. So anyway, Mr. Timbrell's now 77 years old. He lives in St. Thomas, Ontario. He's got seven kids, 16 grandkids, 10 great grandkids, and another due in June. So his life, I think it's fair to say, is both amazing and incredibly hectic. So there we go. All right, let's head to the mailbag. If you've got a burning question or insightful comment, we are always happy to hear it. Our email address is on politics at tvo.org. Go ahead, stick your hand in the mailbag and pull out something for this week. We should get like a prop mailbag. We should, right, we should. <laughs> uh, so we're going to start up with a follow-up email uh, to our segment last week on uh, the song A Place to Stand. Alison Little from Toronto writes... Uh, hello, JMM, Steve, and the On Poly team. Uh, long time, first time. In 2017, <laughs> I worked at the Archives of Ontario and helped build their sesquicentennial exhibit to mark the 150th anniversary of Confederation. Side note, I do love the word sesquicentennial. It's a beautiful word, isn't it? Yes. It included a small section on the centennial anniversary in 1967, given the amount of material from that time in the Archives collections and interest from our core audiences. That section included a TV looping the film A Place to Stand. Uh, part of my job included figuring out who held the rights to the song so that we would be clear to use it in the exhibit. Uh -huh. Turns out the province owns the rights to the Oscar-winning IMAX film A Place to Stand, but an American music publisher now owns the rights to the song. As long as we screened the film, all good. Using just the song would have required a worldwide streaming license. How about that? Okay, Allison, thank you for that clarification because we did talk about this song last week. And... Um I think we did something else last week. You want to know something funny? I played hockey this morning, and one of my hockey buddies came in to the dressing room and said, hey, I saw you singing on your show last <laughs> week. So did you want me to sing a couple of more verses of A Place to Stand while we're here? Uh, no, I'm good. I, I, I don't, uh, I, I'm not clamoring for it. But you know what? Like the audience might get back to us on that. <laughs> I, I, I think the verdict is in, and probably people have heard enough. Okay, here's a question from a listener named Sean Thompson, who is from the great city of Hamilton, Ontario, who writes... To the On Poly team, I have a deep care and concern for our heritage laws in Ontario. With the recent emphasis on fast-tracking housing, I have great concerns that our Prime Minister or some office will try to remove 
or circumvent the processes and protections we have in place to ensure the native and Euro-Canadian history of Canada is respected? Can our provincial leaders sweep away or ignore our heritage laws to speed up development? Has it happened before? Keep up the great work and cheers, Sean Thompson. Okay, Sean, thank you for that. JMM, got an answer for him. Well, I guess the short version uh, to the question is uh, the Ontario Heritage Act and, and, and similar laws are just provincial laws. Um, they, they don't emanate from the Constitution particularly, So, uh, except I guess insofar as there's laws uh, concerning like archaeological respect for Indigenous uh, burials, that kind of thing. But um, if the government wants to repeal these laws in their entirety, they can do so. Uh, they have not done that. Um, but let's give a bit of context here. We're talking about the Ontario Heritage Act in particular that was uh, brought in under, in 1975 under uh, Bill Davis. Uh, we are speaking to you from the Bill Davis studio. We are. Um, the Ontario Heritage Act allows properties to either be listed or designated as heritage structures by uh, citizens petitioning their municipal councils. Uh, listed properties generally uh, have less protection than designated ones. Uh, a, a designated property, uh, you, you really require the uh, municipal consent to make any kind of substantial structural changes uh, to a building, or and certainly to uh, demolish it. Uh, listed properties generally have, have fewer protections, but there is a, a, a time limit. You, you have to, a 60-day waiting period before you can demolish uh, a listed property. Now, Mr. Davis's government would have brought these changes in in the, 19, I guess, mid-1970s. So we're talking, we're talking 50 years ago, pretty much. Yes. Presumably, there have been some changes to the legislation since then. Yeah, uh, various governments have uh, amended the act. As you can imagine, you know, you get one government that is um, uh, more in favor of heritage protection, so they strengthen the law. And then you have, for example, the current government, which um, has uh, made changes to the law that I think are broadly viewed as uh, uh, allowing uh, more redevelopment and, and have put uh, I would say heritage advocates would say uh, it has put more heritage properties at risk. Um, we've talked a lot on this podcast about Bill 23, the uh, More Homes Built Faster Act. Another one of those legislative titles. <laughs> um, the distinction here, we're going to go back to this, this issue of, of listed versus designated properties, right? Municipalities have uh, created huge lists of heritage listed properties. Um, and the government believes, I think it's fair to say, that uh, this part of the law is being overused and is being overused specifically to uh, hinder redevelopment uh, in uh, Ontario's cities. Um, so they uh, implemented a, a change to the law basically saying that you either have to go through the work of taking a listed property and designating it, or uh, by, I believe it's January 1st, 2025, uh, you, all of those listed properties are being delisted. Hmm. And then they cannot be relisted for another five years. And so the government is basically like trying to sweep them all aside and say, like, either get serious about it and designate the, those properties or just your, your lists are going away. Sorry, so which government is doing that? Uh, this is the Ford government. Ford government? Uh, yes, the, the provincial the Ontario government provincial government. Okay. Um, so just to give a, an example, a real world example here, uh, the city of Ottawa has 4,600 listed heritage buildings. Hmm. Um, <laughs> cities are relentlessly clever at uh, finding ways of, uh, let's say, tweaking provincial uh, policy directives. So the city of Ottawa, in order to uh, get around this uh, uh, provincial directive, is delisting all of its heritage properties and then relisting them. And that's going to get buy them another two years uh, of time on the clock. 
that said, you know, it's it's not exactly the Wild West here. Um, if you are a developer and you destroy a heritage building, uh, there can still be pretty substantial consequences, uh, fines of up to a million dollars and potentially even jail time. Now, that doesn't happen. No, no, <laughs> no. And in fact, I'm, you know, as you're saying this, I'm remembering an example right now from the middle 1980s. I remember Art Eggleton was the mayor of Toronto, and there was in the west end of Toronto, there was an old CN train station. And it was a really historic site, and I think it had been designated, as you have suggested here. But CN wanted to do something else with that site. They wanted to tear down the train station and be able to put up, uh, you know, some kind of new development. And the city wasn't letting them do it. So you know what CN did? They just knocked it down. They just did it anyway. They knocked it down anyway. Nobody got fined. Nobody went. I shouldn't say nobody got fined. Nobody went to jail. That's for darn sure. And at the end of the day, the heritage site was no more. Yeah. And I mean, with property values in Toronto being what they are, you, you can imagine there are plenty of places where, you know, paying the million dollar fine would be, that would just be the cost of doing business. Insignificant in a development that might cost $150 million to yeah. put up. And then, uh, I mean, there is also some edge cases where uh, there was an example at Bloor and Young uh, just a few years ago where um, the developer knew that the city council was going to try and get the property listed at its next meeting or something and they knocked it down overnight. Ugh. So, All right. right, let's. I think we got time for one more. Let's do one more listener email. This is from Sean Moore from Ottawa who writes specifically to you. This is apropos of the question we got last week on the difference between a village, a hamlet, a town, a township, a city, etc. So here goes Sean Moore. Did you know, he writes, that there was yet another category in Ontario, a police village. Example, Byron, Ontario, since 1960, part of London, but it had a longer history on the banks of the Thames. When our family moved there in 1958, it was deemed the, quote, largest police village in Ontario. Admittedly, a minor distinction, right, Sean? That is, uh, that's that's some deeply nerdy observation. Oh, I, I love right it up so your much. alley, I bet. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so it's not going to shock you that I was in fact aware of police villages. Um, I, I'm delighted to get emails like this. Um, so police villages go back to, uh, in fact, before Confederation, when Upper Canada was still figuring out local government, basically, and there was a lot of um, experimentation. I think you could say. Um, so the idea behind police villages was that you would uh, get very small localities. We're talking about as few as 150 people could come together and they could fund local priorities, uh, starting with, as the name implies, a police service, right? Remember that, like, this is rural, the smallest of small town Ontario before Ontario was even a province. Mm. The OPP don't exist. Um, And you need some way for there to be law and order. And one solution was to have these police villages. And they continued into the 1950s and the 1960s before, and we're going to once again name check Bill Davis. Uh, one of the things Premier Davis did was a big reorganization of municipal government in 1971. Mm-hmm. And uh, so police villages were uh, all folded into various other regional municipalities. Um, we mentioned, though, this topic came up because we were talking about the uh, issue of you know, who gets to call themselves uh, a town, a city, etc. Oh, I recall. There are very, very strict rules around this. Oh, no, no, wait a second. There are no rules <laughs> are around no this rules. at all. No. Um, and I think I have found the perfect case to, to illustrate this. King City in York Region, yeah. right, is a municipality north of Toronto. Um, it was founded first as a village. And then in, I believe, 1890, it became a police village. 
uh, no, I'm sorry, I have this wrong. It was founded as a village in 1890, then it became a police village in the 1930s. It remained nominally a police village until 1971 when it was incorporated into York Region. And you know what it is today? A nice place to visit. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Well, as you say, there are no rules. No rules. And that's fine. There's no do, law. <laughs> we, do, we do have one rule. We do have one law. We got to get off on time. Yes. That is the On Poly podcast for this March the 1st, 2024. You can follow our shows on Apple Podcasts so that you get notified each time a new episode is available. And if you already follow our show, help a friend follow it too. Any feedback you have, we're happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpoliticsattvo.org and be sure to include your first and last name and where you're located. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara, video editing by Colin Kish. Production support from Jonathan Hallowell, Christine Gardner, Ariana Longley, Vito Tagarelli, Jeff Cusera, and Jennifer DeRosa. Our managing editor is Katie O'Connor, and Lori Few is the executive producer of Digital. John Ferry is vice president of programming and content. Special thanks, as always, to our wonderful crew here in the Bill Davis studio for making this video podcast happen. And until next Friday, everybody, bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone. <laughs>